Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Peering into the past by studying fossils and looking at proteins. So how do we extract information about species without studying the DNA? Well, proteins might be able to help us learn more than DNA ever could. Plus, it's more achievable than science fiction. And we figure out the origins of mandibles, as well as figuring out what lurked in the ancient oceans that was more deadly than a shark. Now, if you've seen the movie Jurassic Park or read the Michael Crichton novel from which it's based, you'll be familiar with the concept of extracting DNA from amber, from mosquitoes, and then using that DNA to reconstruct and repopulate the planet with dinosaurs that had long since died out. And this concept is fanciful, and it's a nice science fiction idea. And it really was quite powerful when our understanding of DNA was being transformed through the 1990s and 2000s. We understood its power and its complexity and a lot more, especially in the public realm. But when you think about it, DNA gets all the attention, but it's all that does is contain messages, instructions, for how to make things like proteins. And then it's actually those proteins that do all the work. The proteins that take a message from one place to another, change things inside your body, keep your cells ticking over, change the function of cells, all that kind of actual legwork, that's done by the proteins. All the DNA does is encoded the messages and say, oi, go do this, or secrete, and choose which proteins to be emitted. So DNA may get all the fame and the glory, but protein does a lot of the significant function. And it's not one or the other, they work hand in hand, they're a paired system. And whilst extracting DNA from fossils may be a bit farcical, researchers from the North Carolina State University, led by Mary Scheitzer, have been exploring the possibility of extracting and analysing dinosaur proteins from fossils. And this was presented at a recent meeting of the Experimental Biology Group in Chicago in April. And one of the reasons why these researchers are so keen in analysing protein is that the sequences of proteins can be actually back-extrapolated out the family tree of an organism, just like DNA. So you can sort of work out the structure and the composition of what makes up that creature from the list of proteins. But also, any of the modifications or the subfunctions of proteins that are very, very important can't often be identified just from the DNA instruction message alone. So the DNA sequence is there, great, but it's hard to actually tell what the protein that it encodes, it creates, does. And that's because the actual purpose of a protein is developed by its 3D structure and its interaction with things. So really, looking at the protein is super useful. For example, as Mary Schweitzer actually goes through her research, says, if you find a, a proline amino acid with an extra OH, an oxygen hydrogen group attached to it, you can be almost certain that that's collagen the stuff that holds together skin and other connective tissues from the body. Now, that's you can't just see that from DNA alone, but if you actually look at the protein and what other groups are attached to it, you can figure out an awful lot about the overall function and structure of something. And from the standpoint of function and evolutionary fitness, changes in DNA over time don't really matter unless the actual end protein, the thing that's being made, actually changes too. 
And so by studying the protein and the change in the proteins over time, you actually get a huge, rich history of what's actually going on with this species, what threats are it facing, what adaptions is it making, what functions is it changing in its body type, in its organs, and so on. And proteins are a bit more useful than that. They can yield clues about the age of a sample or about the environment which it's lived in or buried in. For example, we know, like depending on the way a protein breaks down and while others persist, that we can learn more about the environment that it's been found in. But overall, proteins often remain much, much more stable than DNA does. So when you're trying to extract something, you don't have to wait for this miraculous mosquito trapped inside amber at just the right moment. You can, you can get them from boats. Like, it's a lot easier. Schweitzer and a team have actually found a good method for extracting repeatedly and consistently proteins from dinosaur bones. And from this now, you can actually refine the methods of studying and analysing these ancient proteins. But the, the sample case, the idea, has been proven. So they still need to develop some clear and consistent standard methods that can be used by everybody. Because obviously, mass spectrometry, which is what her team has based a lot of their analysis on at the moment, is really time-intensive and sometimes necessarily destroys the sample. So not really great if you want to preserve something. So Schweitzer and her team are actually developing a database of methods and criteria to help give a toolbox for other paleontologists and evolutionary biologists to study so that they too can help figure out ways to extract proteins from dinosaur tissues, bones, or other samples. Then, once you've actually got a good database of methods, you need to explore what proteins can actually tell us. Is there some type of limit? Can there be clues from animals' physiology and not just evolutionary relationship that we can identify? Can we identify uh, tissues and organs maybe they can tell us other things about the way reproduction works for in a particular species or maybe some other strange oddities that it developed through time in the development of the species there's also some weird things that we can pick up and learn by studying the proteins and the molecular level and changes we can actually understand the new behaviors of these proteins for applications in development of proteins and other medicines today you know if you find a transparent flexible hollow polymer that's been made of a protein that's lasted for 800 for 80 million years maybe that's useful for researchers today in developing medicines or materials so there's a lot we can learn by studying this and what's often been overlooked for just being too simple and not dna after all the research we're doing now for dna for studying proteins in really small samples of bone and dust from dinosaurs may not be that different from, well, sifting through molecules and samples of dust from, let's say, Mars or another planet searching for life, where we don't have the luxury of finding a full skeleton necessarily. So the methods and the techniques being developed today help open paleontologists and evolutionary biologists' eyes to the other wealth of data out there that can be studied. Mary Schweitzer and her team have developed a whole new method that can be used by experimental biologists to peer into our past by studying our proteins.
when you think of a sea monster, obviously Jaws springs to mind, the deadly and devastating shark that terrorises those around it, based loosely off the great white shark, which is still a reasonably dangerous predator in the Australian marine environment. Or maybe you think of the Kraken, the mythical large giant squid that devours ships and sailors, or perhaps even the great white the fabled Moby Dick, the large whales that uh, sunk many a ship back in whaling days, although not really intentionally, more in self-defense. But back in the ancient oceans, there was a different kind of predator. Now, the oceans is where life began, and it was a cornucopia of a variety of life forms, of squids, of anemones, of trilobites, of vertebrates, invertebrates, you name it. It was there. There were myriads of different body types also being developed. Some would go on to populate the world we know today, and others proved to be less successful and died out. But about 430 million years ago, long before sleek barracudas or sharks, these major predators that we know today, developed, a different type of predator stalked the oceans. And it wasn't small, it was quite large, up to about 3 metres in length. And in these primordial seas, the original sea monsters were Eurypterids, or better known as sea scorpions. That's right, whilst sharks and crocodiles are ancient creatures aging back from hundreds of millions of years ago, before they had developed, sea scorpions ruled the seas. And one of the reasons why was because unlike, well let's say a lobster or a crayfish, which has a tail which flips backwards and forward for propulsion. A sea scorpion has a tail that moves from side to side. There's little resistance that way, and it actually keeps you close to the prey. It doesn't shoot you away from it, which is useful. And a recent discovery by researchers at the University of Alberta in Canada have discovered a new type of Eurypterid called the Slimonia acuminata, which is based on a fossil collected from the Patrick Byrne Formation near Lasmagau in Scotland. And it actually has a, it's a sea scorpion, a Eurypterid, which has a serrated spine-tipped curved tail, which only on one side, with a strong curve in it, much more like a, a hook than you would expect in a normal scorpion tail. And the researchers have identified that actually the way in which it ate its prey was based on using its claws at the front of its mouth, its head to latch onto a prey before swinging in this hooked shaped tail across from side to side slicing up its fish prey which meant they could eat both vertebrates and invertebrate and slice through some vertebrate armor or bones making it quite a deadly predator in fact as it can get up to sizes of about three meters long it's not something that you'd really ever want to come across as you were swimming through the ancient oceans so this is some great work from University of Alberta scientists Scott Persons and John Acorn, which just goes to show that some of the deadliest predators that we see here on land today, little scorpions, actually were once earlier in their lifetimes a much more powerful and devastating underwater sea monster. When you think of bugs and insects, you think of uh, something with mandibles. These pincer-like claws at the front of the mouth used for biting, holding, or getting through prey or food, whether that be meat or plant life. 
Mandibles are uh, pretty important for a lot of different creatures, from everything from flies, ants, crayfish, centipedes, you name it. These things have these sort of mandibles. And we call this family of creatures mandibulates. And this is really cool because it's a hyperdiverse group of athropods, which have these specialized appendages on the front of their mouths, particularly used to grasp, crush, and cut their food. And there are literally millions of different species of mandibulates, and they're pretty much one of the largest success stories of the development of a particular niche or body type and then exploiting that through a whole different type of environments, ecological situations, and time. It is an evolutionary success story. But the problem has been we didn't really know where mandibulates came from. We saw all these species with this feature, but we didn't know why or how they developed. And paleontologists from the University of Toronto, working together with the Royal Ontario Museum, have been studying a collection of fossils from British Columbia, another region on Canada on the western coast, where they found what they believe is the source of all mandibulates from over 500 million years ago. And this work was led by Cedric Aria, who was a lead researcher and part of the PhD program at the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Toronto, but now has moved on to Nanjing Institute of Geology and Paleontology in China. So how did these researchers crack this mystery of the development of the mandibulates? Well, 500 million years ago, in what is now the Marble Canyon in the Kootenai National Park in British Columbia, was a tropical sea, which is hard to think about when you think about Canada nowadays, but based on the position of the continents at the time, that area actually, or where this landmass equated to, actually was a large tropical ocean teeming with life. With some of the largest Cambrian predators, over 10 centimetres in length, were fully developed. And when they've had this large tropical ocean feeding with life, there had to be something, you know, eating some of this lush vegetation and life inhabiting this tropical sea. And a new type of predator developed. It was a soft-body arthropod, uh, which was a bottom dweller, based at least on what the fossils that they've managed to piece together. Occasionally it swam, but mostly it just hung out at the bottom with robust anterior legs sort of much like a lobster or a mantis shrimp of today. And they call this predator that lurked at the bottom there. Tacumia catalepsis. They named this after Tokum Creek, which is a place in the Marble Canyon in the Kootenai National Park where it was first found. They found these fossils during an expedition in 2012 to 2014. And collectively, this area of fossil sites are called the Burgess Shale, uh, which is one of the UNESCO World Heritage listed sites in 1980, mostly because of its large amount of fossils from a variety of different eras found there. These fossils were collected up by the Royal Ontario Museum and then analysed by researchers from the University of Toronto. And in this is where they actually found this Takumia. And the Takumia they found actually had a multi-segmented body. And it was one of the best-preserved specimens of a soft-bodied arthropod that they'd found in the Marble Canyon. It, and it's 
quite a unique body type for it to be found in the Cambrian explosion period, basically this period in time where hundreds of millions of new species developed uh, with rapid evolutionary changes going on in all different directions. And this is pretty much one of those periods where in the fossil record we can find the, the development of new body types and new ideas, and the Takumia was one of them. And by piecing together all the fossils, of multiple fossils they found of this type, and lots of photographic work and fossil work, they actually built up the skeleton such as it is. Well, not really a skeleton, but the fossil, because it's a soft-bodied arthropod, uh, doesn't have bones in it, so to speak. They found these serrated mandibles, as well as the specialised set of anterior claws called maxillopeds, and the rest of the body, body parts, over 50 small segments in all, in this two-piece shell-like structure, which they call a bivalved carapace. Now, this many-segmented body is uh, quite reminiscent of the mirapopods, the group of species that now today that include centipedes and millipedes and other relatives. Now, the pincers on the Takumia are large and also delicate. It's basically got one large one over the top and then a smaller one, uh, basically, that sort of nests into it, much in the same way as a can opener. And the reason why the researchers believe that this has developed is that it means that they can ha they can handle shelly animals. Animals with strong outside shells and soft inside parts it means they can tear and sort of squeeze through it, much in the same way as your can opener pierces and punctures and then serrates through uh, the lid of a can. And that's great because then it can sort of crush through these and make it into actually digestible pieces, which is why mandibulates today actually have the same type of mandible features. So by studying this fossil record of the tropical ocean of the Precambrian explosion, we can get a good idea of how this diverse and widespread species that we see across from all shapes and sizes today in our world and in our fossil record, we can see where it started with one of the earliest records of mandibulates seen today with this Takumia discovered in the Burgess Shale in British Columbia with some great research by the University of Toronto. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Using proteins to peer into the past of fossils, as well as finding the origins of mandibles, and what we can learn about ancient sea scorpions that ruled the oceans. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.